0: Hello, and welcome to Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios with Elizabeth Spires of Slate and New York Times and places like that. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. And, very excitingly, we are here with the one and only Kashmir Hill of the New York Times. Kashmir, welcome.
1: Hi, thank you. Good to be here.
0: Kashmir is the greatest technology journalist of her generation. She's um a brilliant, wonderful and incredibly funny and just perfect person in all respects. She has written a book. What is the name of the book?
1: Your face belongs to us.
0: Because it's a nonfiction because it's a non-fiction book, there's always a colon and then a long subtitle. Only Walt Isaacson doesn't do that. If anyone, if your name isn't Walt Isaacson, you need a subtitle. So, what's the subtitle?
1: Your face belongs to us. A secretive startup's quest to end privacy as we know it.
0: We are going to talk about that secretive startup. It's called Clearview AI, and we're going to talk about face recognition more generally, and we're going to talk about AI more generally, and we're going to talk about Rupert Murdoch, and we have a Slate Plus segment. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Okay, so Kashmir, when I was growing up, and even now that I'm a grown-up, I have a terrible memory for faces. People meet me or I meet people and they're like, We've met seventeen times and I have no idea who they are. And I always dreamed of a lovely device that would, you know, remind me or like tap me on my sort of shoulder and tell me who they were. And now that exists and it's horribly dystopian. Is
2: it? Isn't
0: it? Is it? I don't know.
2: <laughs> I mean, does it
0: exist and is it dystopian? I guess that's my, my, my double-sided question here.
1: I'm just thinking of when I first met you like three different times and you never remembered me and how how offended I was. I wish you'd had this app.
0: One hundred percent, yes. It was nothing to do with you, and everything to do with the fact that I'm just incredibly bad at remembering faces.
3: But that was fourteen times less than it normally takes Felix <laughs> to internalize. Exactly. The face. If it was
0: only three, Cash, <laughs> then at that point, like I'm, I'm outperforming.
1: I mean, so so yes, um, the technology is is here. Um, it's been here for a while. It's been unevenly distributed, uh, so it was hard to get you know, this superpower, unless you were Officer Felix, Um, or if you happen to be a billionaire investor that Clearview AI pitched in its early days.
2: So should we tell people about Clearview AI? Should you tell people?
0: Yeah, Clearview AI, I guess, was the first company to sell this technology. It's no longer the only company to sell this technology, but it does seem to be Ticking along in the face of massive lawsuits.
1: Yeah, so Clearview AI has one of the biggest face databases. They're a pretty tiny New York startup. Uh, very unusual backgrounds for the people involved with the company. Not your usual startup entrepreneurs, but they scraped billions of images from the public web, from social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Venmo, and and yeah, built this this massive. Database without anyone's consent. It now has, they say, thirty billion faces in it, and you can take a photo of someone, uh, upload that photo, and it will show you where else it's seen their face around the web, along with a uh, along with a, a link to that place.
0: And most importantly, it will tell you who they are.
1: Well, it'll tell you who they are if the breadcrumbs are there, right? It doesn't just say, "I don't upload feel your, you know, your picture," and it says, "This is Felix," but. When I uploaded a very old photo of you, it did give me a bunch of current photos of you that had your name, you know, all over the websites that it connected to. So, it it kind of – it depends on how much you uh, – how many photos are in the database and kind of where they link to, what kind of information you get. But it could reveal your name, uh, you know, your social media profiles, uh, the online sex tapes that you recorded years and years ago that you didn't know God were out there. I was
0: hoping I'd keep those secret. <laughs>
1: It can, yeah. I mean, it can be very revealing.
0: And just to be clear here, like ninety nine percent of the time, like something basic like your name, it will it will come up with. That's how often have you managed to stump it with someone who it can't even identify by name?
1: So I don't have access to Clearview AI. It is limited to. Police departments. I've I've had Clearview AI, AI searches run on me by Juan Tan Tat, the CEO, because uh, I met with him a lot uh, over the years while I was working on the book. Um, I had there, so Clearview AI has imitators now, though. So there's a public face search engine called PIM Eyes, and it's very similar to Clearview. It's a smaller database. I don't think it's as comprehensive, um, and I've st- it, it stumped it. a couple of times, when I was trying to sell my book uh, the night before it went on sale, I said, hey, you know, if you pre-order it and send me the screenshot, I'll run your PIMI's report for you because it's a subscription service. And so I had a bunch of people send me photos. And there were a couple that didn't have anything online. But for others, there was quite a bit. The one that was re- most striking for me was a person who works in the privacy field, had a lot of professional kind of headshots but then there was there was one photo where he's kind of in a crowd and the URL indicated it was from something like gaynewsletters.com and he said uh what is that one and I clicked through the whole image and it was a kind of risque dancer he is in the crowd watching his face is so tiny and out of focus and he just had no idea that that was on the internet or even that that photo had been taken
2: so what was interesting in your book is that this technology was kind of out there and around and the big tech companies could have done what Clearview did, but they didn't. And ClearView's edge was they were willing to do something unethical and maybe dystopian and maybe terrible, but they didn't the stakes were lower for them, so they went ahead and just did it. Are the big tech companies still staying out of facial recognition technology now, or have things move forward?
1: Yeah. I mean, the technology was out there in terms of facial recognition algorithms had gotten very good in the last 10 years, and they got open source. And so, yeah, it was easy for a kind of scrappy bunch of people who had some tech savvy to, to use them on a database. And then they had the money they needed to build this huge database because it's not cheap to store billions and billions of photos. Um, so, yeah. So, they did put it together. And when I was working on the book, found out that Google and Facebook had developed this, you know, technology internally, but decided it was too scary or too risky to put out there because of the bad ways that it could be used. So they've been kind of sitting on it. But Andrew Bosworth, who's the chief technology officer at, at Meta, um, you know, the, the new name for Facebook, has said, you know, I really want to put facial recognition capabilities into these augmented reality glasses that Facebook's been working on for a while now. And uh, I listened to this recording of an internal meeting where one of the employees said, well, you know, if if we do something like that, is there going to be a way for somebody to opt out if they don't want their face to be included? And he said, yeah, you know, we're worried. that We're talking about this a lot internally. We don't know if it's legal or not to give a power like this. You know, we're not sure if society's ready for it. It's a debate that we really need to have. But I could imagine a world, now that Clearview AI has broken this taboo, Facebook might say, okay, this is a little bit less creepy than it used to be. How about in these augmented reality glasses, we have an opt-in for facial, facial recognition, where you can say, Yeah, I'm Felix Salmon. I want everybody to know who I am. Um, Sure, you know, if somebody looks at me, they can know my name and I'm happy for them to know who I am. Whereas somebody more uh, more private might say, okay, I'm not going to opt in. When somebody looks at me, it will not supply a name. I, I kind of feel like that's a possible future that we might see. Or we might just keep having what we have now in the U.S., which is, yeah, I could, I could take a picture of anybody and run it through PIM eyes because of the, the technology's there and we're not really doing a
3: great job of regulating it here. Can you talk a little bit about what the really sort of terrifying use cases are for this technology? You mentioned a, several of them in the book. Yeah, yeah. What's the dystopia side of this?
1: So dystopia side is, uh, you know, you're an anti-abortion protester outside of a Planned Parenthood. A woman walks into the clinic or out of the clinic. You take her photo. You find out her name. Um, You post online about the fact that she's uh, maybe just gotten an abortion. Uh, You know, you are on the train. You bump into somebody. And you don't realize it, but this is a person who holds grudges. And they take your picture. They find out who you are. They go online and decide to try to destroy your online reputation, write horrible things about you. Say you're a pedophile. You know, uh, this is the, I, I, this is from an example of a woman I've written about who, who, who kind of serially like, destroys people's reputation. And you have no idea who the person even is. You don't even remember bumping into them. You know, you're at a bar. There's a creepy guy talking to you. You are not interested. You walk away. You're hoping never to see him again. And he runs your face. He knows who you are, he finds your social media profiles, um, you're an authoritarian government, uh, you are you are Russia, and you do not want people in your country protesting against Ukrainian war. So um, you take photos of protesters and then the police show up their house later and give them tickets for unlawful assembly. That is very much a real example. I mean, there's, there's so many. I can keep going if you want.
0: One of the more fascinating real examples you give is China, which we know has this insane surveillance state. But you, you talk about how if you are very well-connected and privileged in China, one, one of the ways you can exercise that privilege is basically by opting out of the face surveillance system. Like that's like that little prize you get for being super important.
1: Yeah. I mean, usually with a book like this, at the end, you would have to say, here are the future possible dystopian uses. But for me, I can just point to China because they are far out ahead of us on this. And they're using facial recognition technology for everything from identifying the protesters in Hong Kong to identifying Uyghur Muslims, a group there that is very much having their human rights abused on on a regular basis. Um, and then they use it for for really like just crazy things, um, using facial recognition technology to shame people who wear pajamas in public, um, using facial recognition technology in public restrooms in Beijing because they had toilet paper thieves. And so now to get toilet paper there, you have to look into a camera, and then you'll get like nine inches of toilet paper, and you can't get more for another <laughs> seven
2: minutes. Um, <laughs> That is the most dystopian thing. I mean, it is book. straight out of Black I Mirror.
0: It really is. <laughs> I mean, this
2: is, oh, I, I think there's uh, a
1: lot of good use cases for facial recognition technology, but I do think that once you get the the technology in place, you can have this kind of slippage. I mean, I always think about Madison Square Garden, you know, here in New York City, and installed facial recognition systems a few years ago to protect against security threats, uh, you know, Terrorists are right on top of um, they're right on top of Pennsylvania. They're right on top of Penn Station. And people have been violent at games. And then in the last year, Dame Stol- James Dolan, the billionaire owner, says... Well, another good use of this would be to, to punish all these annoying lawyers who keep suing me. And, you know, he puts thousands of lawyers on, on a ban list and enforces it with facial recognition technology so they can't come to Knicks and Rangers games and Mariah Carey concerts until they drop their lawsuits.
2: They can't. They, they're keeping the lawyers from the Bruce Springsteen shows. That's just...
0: I mean, yeah, that's punishment. <sighs> I So, one of the things that happened early on in the history of the web was that the ad tech people and there's a lot of like unbelievably sophisticated ad tech out there one of the less sophisticated bits of ad tech is called retargeting where they just kind of follow you around the web and show you the same ad over and over again but despite the fact that it's not particularly sophisticated it is particularly creepy and this was the one bit of web advertising that people really didn't like and they hated the idea that they would go to this you know widget website and then suddenly ads for that widget would be everywhere on the web and it just felt like and you know it felt like an invasion of privacy in a way that like all ad tech is but it was just more obvious and now, when I come into America with my global entry, it doesn't ask me for my you know, fingerprints or my um, green card or my passport or anything. It just kind of looks at my face and goes, oh, yeah, yeah, you're cool. Go on in. And that they, they even have that at, like, air, airplane boarding gates now. And I feel this is the sort of acid test. Do people just kind of go, oh, okay, I guess we are now face-recognitioning me, and that's just how it's going to be? Or are people creeped out about it to the point at which there will be a sort of broad backlash against it.
3: Uh, I wonder if part of the reason why that doesn't creep you out, though, is that there's not the same feedback loop. You know, you used to be able to retarget on Facebook and you could create an ad that's targeted specifically to the user that could say... Felix, I see you were just at blah, blah, oh, blah, you know, store. that's really is
0: creepy, yeah. And,
3: and they can still do that, but they they took away that functionality because it was creeping people out.
0: You see, I'm not sure that I'm not creeped out by global entry cameras. You know, I feel like they, they do still feel like this weird combination of convenient and dystopian.
1: I just think there's this whole spectrum of possible facial recognition use cases. And, you know, yeah, opening your phone, unlocking your phone with your face is great and convenient. People like it. You know, uh, I, I went to London for the book to do the research for it. And I landed in Heathrow. And just, you know, walked right up to the little gate, put my passport down. There's a biometric chip in your passport with your your face print and look into the camera and it just matched it. And I walked right in rather than spending hours there waiting for a human being to look at it. I mean, yeah, I think most people like that. But I don't think that you... I
0: mean, it's got to be better than standing in line at Heathrow, man. And the is... <laughs>
1: exactly. I was like, yes, yes, take my face. So I did call the home office uh, afterwards and I said, okay, well, what do you do with that image? How long do you keep that? What else do you use it for? And they wouldn't answer any of my questions. Um, so that part of it was, was unsettling. But I, I, I don't think that we should have to just accept it all. Like, okay, well, I like being able to get into the country easily. So that means that once I get there, you know, you can uh, track my every movement and have facial recognition deployed on all the cameras and you know everyone I meet with while I'm there. And if you decide to, like, pick me up at some point, uh, you can just just grab me at a coffee shop because you know exactly when I I got there. Um, I do think there's a range of uses and we shouldn't have to just accept them all because we like some of them.
0: I want to say that since 9-11, there has basically been no chance that the US government or really any government is going to voluntarily constrain itself in terms of how it can use this kind of technology. There, There may be some kind of future piece of legislation in Congress governing the use of this by the private sector. But is there any way that the government would voluntarily like tie its own hands behind its back like that?
1: I, I understand that tension. I do think there's precedent. Um, I always think about speed cameras, that we could have speed cameras on every road of in America. And anytime you went over the speed limit, you automatically got a ticket. But but we as a society have rejected that. Now, I mean, there's like all, lots of examples of small towns, small towns who put speed cameras in, and people said, "Nope, don't want it," and they got rid of them. Uh, you know, there there are uh, wiretapping laws are another great example. We have surveillance cameras all over this country. You know, we pass by hundreds probably every day if you live in a city, but they're only recording your image. They're not recording the conversations you have. In front of them, and that's because we passed wiretapping laws that say we should have some privacy in in conversations that we have. So I I think we have tied our hands in the past because we value privacy, but it is a constant kind of battle.
0: Yeah, my my feeling is that the hand-tying, things like the wiretapping laws generally predate 9-11, and that things like the speed limit laws are really only peripherally related to privacy like the reason people hate speed limit cameras or you know average speed cameras on the freeway or something like that is it's basically just that they just don't want to get tickets for speeding it's not because they particularly value their privacy but i
1: think that's what privacy is about it's this ability to have control over your life and make decisions uh, without being judged all the time or punished for them. Um, I, I agree. You know, it's not explicitly a privacy question. You know, how fast you drive your car, um, but a lot of privacy questions do tap into that. It's just, you know, if if I like in China, going back to China, um, in in some cities there, when you jaywalk, you immediately get a ticket uh, based on facial recognition technology. They just send it to you. This happened to a Chinese executive in a city she'd never been to. And when they looked into it, it's because her face was on the side of a bus. And uh, she accidentally got it, got ticketed. But it's about these, you know, should we have the ability to decide I'm going to jaywalk right now or not? Um, it's the same thing with privacy questions of am I comfortable, you know, Making out with somebody in the street—am I comfortable? F- you know, fond- fondling my boyfriend and getting fondled at Beetlejuice, uh, or if I do that, is it going to come back to haunt me? Yeah, it's
3: funny. Every Christmas, I tell my now eight-year-old that we're not going to do Elf on the Shelf because it normalizes their su- surveillance state, <laughs> and I actually really think that <laughs> we we've gotten so used to being constantly surveilled that it it sort of changes the way that we operate in the culture. Um, Do you think that that's happening with facial recognition technology? People are just accustomed to it now. Sorry, all I can think about right now is you better watch out, you
1: better not cry. And how Santa Claus is well, Santa Claus is totally Sa- authoritarian. Santa was the first
0: surveillance state dystopian character. Absolutely. He he has a list, he's checked it twice, he's you know, it's it's all A B tested.
1: I I think there is a certain hopelessness about privacy and this this feeling that it's so hard to control your information. Um and yeah, I mean, I think that that is out there. There's a certain resignation to this is coming. There's nothing I can do about it among certain people. But there are other people that are resisting it. And I I, I do think that there's this kind of hopeful strain in the book, which is that laws work. And you can pass laws to decide you know how ubiquitous facial recognition is, and how much control we have over whether our photos get sucked up into these databases. Europe has strong privacy laws, and they just they kicked Clearview AI out. Clearview is not doing business there anymore. Um, even in the U.S.,
2: you know, yeah,
0: Illinois comes comes out as like the the weird sort of hero <laughs> of your book. You're like, Illinois, okay.
2: Wait, explain why Illinois is the weird hero.
0: Oh, so so Illinois is the weird hero because it passed this this privacy law. Um, and cash can can tell us a bit um, more about it but but beyond that i mean the legal side of things i think was one of the most fascinating parts of the book you talk at some length about the way that the aclu for instance was very conflicted about which side of this debate it wanted to come down on who would you say are the are there any like nationally national figure politicians who are sort of staking out clear ground on either side of this debate
1: I mean, you have the privacy hawks like um, uh, Ron Wyden and uh, uh, Ed Ed Markey, who really have come out and said, you know, we explicitly, we don't like Clearview AI. We think that what they've done is wrong. We need to pass laws around facial recognition technology. Um, Ron Wyden is concerned more generally about these kinds of surveillance companies that are... Um, doing privatized surveillance, gathering information about us in ways that would be unconstitutional if the government did them, like uh, location brokers that are, you know, paying location uh, off the, the piggybacking on uh, apps on your smartphone, Clearview Eye, getting all these faces Um you know this one company that flies planes over cities and takes aerial photographs of everything that's happening. So these these companies do this surveillance and then they sell it to the government. And so it's a workaround around the Fourth Amendment. And so he has been kind of trying to get some support around a law um, to make that illegal. But yeah, I mean, there's interest at the national level, but... You know, it tra- I, I tracked it in the book and it's just again and again, it's it's a, it's incredibly strange bedfellows. You know, Dick Armey, uh, very conservative uh, congressman teamed up with the ACLU after, um, after the Snooper Bowl when facial recognition technology was used on football fans secretly at the 2001 Super Bowl in Tampa. Um back in, I think it was 2018, John Lewis, you know, the civil rights leader, a uh, liberal congressman leading the impeachment into Trump alongside Mark Meadows and uh, uh, what's his name, Jim Jordan, who, you know, big Trump supporters totally on the opposite side of the aisle. They're, they're together at this hearing about facial recognition technology saying, we need to do something about this. This this threatens all of our privacy it threatens our private, private uh it threatens our civil liberties we need to pass a lot of stop facial recognition technology and just no one no one did it al franken you know over and over again people saying we care about this it's a bipartisan issue but nothing nothing happens so i f- i felt a little deja vu during the ai summit um a couple of weeks ago when, again, it was gathering, you know, all of these technology companies, all of these critics to say this technology is getting out of control. We need to regulate it. And I, I just felt like, oh, I've, I, I've seen this happen for the last 15 years over facial recognition technology, which is AI. And we just haven't managed to do anything yet. At the state level, though, things have happened at the state level.
0: That's a fantastic segue to AI more broadly, which you have been looking at and we wanted to ask you about which is basically the facial recognition notwithstanding do you see ai in much the same way as like an incredibly powerful technology that is also like terrifyingly dystopian at the same time
1: i see a a lot of overlap between facial recognition technology and generative ai i mean they both are ai (laughs) um and very similar questions around gathering a bunch of information on the public internet, you know, privatizing it, training on it, using it in ways people didn't want or expect and people feel very angry. I always think of artists when it comes to gener- generative AI who are not happy about their 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 artwork being um Uh, uh, sucked up. And then these questions of, well, how accurate is this technology? What are the flaws? What are the problems? What are the biases? This isn't audited. Uh, This isn't transparent. We don't know what was used to train it. Um, I do think it's a lot of the same questions. And this it's kind of like, what I saw of Clearview AI is what I think we're going to see with these other artificial intelligence technologies that they go open source. And basically anyone who has a you know some technical savvy and enough money can use this enormous computing power uh, to do what they want to do. And they can be the most radical actor and release what they want to release. Uh, so right now, open AI has kind of been that radical actor. Like Google was sitting on generative AI tools that it didn't Want to release? It didn't think society was ready for them. And then OpenAI came along, this smaller startup, and just kind of threw open the doors and said, "You know, here's Dolly, here's ChatGPT," and it w- it broke through that taboo just like Clearview AI, Clearview AI broke through the taboo on um, on facial recognition. I think OpenAI has been um, has been transparent in some ways and has been reflective, engaging with the press and. Policymakers in a way that Clearview AI did not, you know, like I forced, I forced, I forced the sunlight on them. Um, but yeah, no, I see. I mean, I see so many parallels.
3: Why do you think suddenly there's there's all this consumer interest in AI? Because you know, AI has been around for a long time, and there's AI in almost every piece of technology that we use that's reasonably sophisticated. Is it just that uh, OpenAI releasing chat GPT? Yeah, so like we,
0: we can use it now. It's like it was. It was used in products by other people before, but now it's something we can go into mid-journey and create an image. We can go into ChatGPT and have a conversation. Like it's, it's now available to normies in the way that it was not before.
3: I mean, sort of. I mean, autocorrect is AI. Yeah. Is it? I mean, yeah. I
1: agree with you. AI has been a long, around for a long time. Um, I think that there was something that really captured the imagination about chatgpt specifically and seeing this this kind of power to create yeah, it was just fun. Like it went viral. It was fun to talk to it. I, it was funny. I, I I find like kind of dumb things really incredible about AI. I had to. I was teaching some high school high schoolers this summer interested in journalism, and I had to make a bunch of PowerPoint presentations. And I hadn't done that in a long time, and so I was making power. And I'm terrible at it. But you know, I went into PowerPoint, and now there's this little button you can press, and you're just like, dude. And it just turns your PowerPoint into a beautiful PowerPoint, like well formatted. You just throw like some photos in there, a couple of bullet points, and it transforms it into something amazing. <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, this is the AI I'm here for.
3: <laughs> but yes. I did that uh, f- a few weeks ago. I was teaching an opinion writing workshop, and I'm terrible at presentations too. And now Google Slides has a little AI tool where you can ask it to generate images for your PowerPoint. And so I, I put in a a very important person. That was the prompt. And it spit out something that looked like a Frankenstein version of Chuck Grassley scowling at people. Perfect. <laughs> yeah.
1: I think, I think, you know, AI is one of those, t- those terms. That's not, uh, it's funny. Cause everyone now, when they say AI, they mean generative AI. Um, and it's just, I just think it's, it's the trend right now.
2: I think the timing also made it pop. Like, ChatGPT gpt came out and it went viral and at the same time the in- tech investors and in the startup world and business in general they they needed a new thing because crypto had kind of gone away and no one would say blockchain anymore with any excitement so they needed a new like buzzy thing to just get into and then nvidia kind of popped at the same time and everyone you know just like turned their heads and was like oh AI is the new hot lady in town, and then now it's like every company is throwing the the term in every press release and and claiming to be the next AI, blah blah blah. Or yeah, d- doing
0: dot AI is definitely the new dot com. I'm old enough to remember when everyone was like, I, I can ten x my valuation just by putting dot yes, com it's on the, the end same of my thing. name. <laughs> and, now, and now they they're doing the same thing with AI.
3: Slate Money dot AI. AI.
0: Exactly. We do not need humans to create this anymore. We'll just get a computer to do it. It'll Be so much cheaper.
1: But it is not new. I mean, it, you know, in the last 10 years, the thing that popped was neural net technology. And the that is the technology that underlies generative AI. And then we just, it was called neural nets or neural net technology, and they weren't calling it necessarily AI. It's just kind of changing terms for the same thing, which is computers getting very powerful, being able to ingest a lot of data and learn from it and do really incredible things, you know, like the way that computers can recognize human faces now is ast- is astounding. And this is a technology that was so flawed for so long, really did not work in the real world, didn't work when, you knew your face changed a lot, didn't work very well on you if you weren't a white man. And then, you know, when you get the internet, you get all of this data, and you can throw it into these let these learning models. I mean, it's just incredible what it can do. So uh, I do wonder what's to come.
0: Well, one of the things that fascinates me about the face recognition thing is that it cuts against the idea that I see a lot that AI is really good at being sort of quasi creative and much less good than old fashioned computing at being accurate. And, you know, if someone had come along to me, you know, 10 years ago and said, there's going to be an AI face recognition thing. And we're going to like, well, of course, that'll be easy because you can just train it, but there will be a huge number of false positives and misidentifications and stuff because it's just like, it's an inherently much fuzzier technology than um, than like typical digital computing. And instead, I guess, because this is what where the demand was, what we've managed to do, what companies like Clearview AI have managed to do is really make this, Um, Face recognition, incredibly accurate, to the point at which you show an AI, like, uh, an illustration of me. someone, like, you know, does a drawing of me, this is immediately recognizable to anyone who knows me, but it would not be immediately recognizable as me to any AI that I know of.
1: It is very powerful. I want to say it does still make mistakes. Uh, I definitely have written about you know a number of people so far, all the ones that we know of are black who have been you know basically arrested for the crime of looking like someone else. Most recent one was a woman named Portia Woodruff. She was eight months pregnant, you know police showed up at her door to arrest her for robbery and carjacking. Uh, the person who committed the crime a month earlier was not visibly pregnant. It was definitely the wrong person, but she spent a day in jail. She was charged. Uh, you know, she had to hire a fight it off. Like It does get it wrong. And especially if, you know, the image that you give it is not high quality. So if it's this grainy surveillance tape you're not going to get as um um as, as accurate results so i just don't want to leave anyone who's listening with the impression that it it's perfect um uh, but i have also seen it do in i mean incredible incredible matches when when juan Tontat would run clearview ai searches on me even if i like covered up the bottom half of my face it would still make matches um at one point it it one of the photos that it pulled up was kind of somebody posing and then somebody walking by in the background. I did not see myself in this picture and then realized that it was me in the background. I didn't recognize my face, but the coat I was wearing, I had bought it at an American vintage store in Tokyo. It was like very unique. And I realized, wow, that's me. And I just, I I couldn't believe it was able to match my face, that version of me 10 years earlier in profile. It was crazy.
2: One thing I was thinking about is facial recognition is such a it's obviously such a modern futuristic thing. I mean, futuristic. it's it's happening now. But at the same time, it takes us all back as a culture to like, and I don't even know if this the world existed exactly, but when we all lived in a tiny village and no one had any privacy at all, everyone knew everyone's business, and that's just how life was. And like, a big part of the story of like people moving to the cities and modernization and urbanization was that, you were granted this wonderful gift of anonymity, and now this new modern technology is sort of like taking it back. And now we're like back to the small village. Only there's like billions of us, and we don't live in a small village. And the police could show up at your door and arrest you for something you absolutely didn't do. But um, but but yeah, it makes me they think could like, do in the
0: small village as well.
2: Just right. It makes me think that that privacy, that that hard won anonymity of the of urbanization, like that was like a it was a blip. Now it's over
1: yeah, I think it's it is increasingly hard to be anonymous um and it will get much harder if facial recognition is super ubiquitous um yeah
0: uh, i I cash, you were one of the few people who will remember um a viral blog from many years ago, like 20 years ago, called She's a Flight Risk, which purported to be a blog from this woman who like, had a whole bunch of money and wanted to just like drop off the grid and be completely unfindable. And even back then, it was improbable, you know, extremely improbable that anybody would be able to do this. And I think at this point uh, now, it's basically impossible.
1: I don't remember that blog, but I remember, because I loved it so much, um, Evan Ratliff's Vanish piece in Wired.
0: Oh, that was Amazing great.
1: story. Yeah. And yeah, just him trying to, same thing as, as what you're describing. Maybe he got the idea from that, but yeah, just trying to, can I vanish? Can I totally disappear? And the internet can't find me. Did he pull it off? I think he did, right? Uh, do you remember the end? I haven't, I haven't I haven't read the piece in about 15 years.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm to go read that.
0: <laughs> we'll have to get him back on and ask him about AI. We do need to go back to Elizabeth's very important person, Um, because there was news this week, which, Cash, we do want to ask you about. I don't think there's any particular AI angle, except for that there's an AI angle on everything. But we have now officially reached the end of the Murdoch era in terms of Rupert Murdoch being a major media mogul who controls some of the most important media companies in the world. Uh, he announced this week that as of November, he's going to step down as chair of both News Corp and Fox Corp. Um, his I don't
1: know. That's not how it went down in succession, Number one it? son,
0: eldest son. I am the eldest son, in the words of um, Kendall Roy. He's going to take over. Is this like, what does this mean? Is this <laughs> important? Is this, I feel like it's a moment that I, yeah, should be marked I mean, somehow.
1: It's... It's so interesting, just the... I, I guess I, I always think about it with the technology framework, right? And the power of institutions in the Internet age and and what Fox News is now and what it will be and and where those kind of power centers are. I mean, it's so interesting to see Tucker Carlson leave the network and, you know, go and start his own thing. And it's been one of those, those dynamics I've been looking at for how in this Internet age where Content is distributed in, in, in such new and different ways on so many different platforms. You know, what is the power of, of Fox News and, and what it will be in the years to come versus these individual uh, personalities?
0: No, I, th- I think that's absolutely right. I think Fox News is significantly less powerful than it was in the heyday of Roger Ailes. I I can certainly say that the Times and the Sunday Times in the UK are less powerful, and the Sun is much less powerful than it used to be. Obviously, um, the Murdoch Empire is much smaller than it used to be because he sold 20th Century Fox to Disney. Um, But yeah, it's hard to think of any one man ever again using media in that kind of like newsy sort of media sense to influence global politics in the way that that Murdoch did. I mean, there's a really strong case to be made, for instance, that the reason the UK is not in the euro is entirely because Rupert Murdoch didn't want it to be. Um, And that was a kind of quiet deal that he did with Tony Blair. He was like, I will support you, Tony Blair, even though you're a left winger, and in return, you're not going to join the euro. And that's basically what happened. Um, And Nowadays, the powerful moguls, I think, you know, that it's, it's Mark Zuckerberg. You know, it's not Rupert Murdoch. It's it's not the owners of the news outlets anymore.
2: Yeah, this is about, this isn't like powerful moguls are going away. This is just like powerful, the media just isn't what it was because we're so fractured. Well, the news media tech. isn't what it was. Yeah, the news media, right. But I mean, Rupert Murdoch, we should say, you know, he stepped down um, a CEO and executive chairman, co was it co-CEO and co-executive chairman, but he's not going away. I mean, it's clear that like as long as this man is breathing, he's going to be, <laughs> you know, messing well, his around. Mom
3: lived to be 103, so as he as he likes made, to, another 11 years of
0: as he likes to remind people frequently, and he and even in his leaving letter, he made sure to say like. Both I and my companies are in great health. So like, okay, okay, we We know you're 92, but... I
3: plan to get married at least five more times. Before-
2: <laughs> and we will cover it here on Slate Money. <laughs> <laughs> and he still has a big ownership stake in, um, in Fox that he's, I'm sure, quite interested in. And he made clear in his going away memo, like, I'll still be watching and I'll still have thoughts and we'll still fight the elite, which... I cannot believe Rupert Murdoch can say with a straight face. I mean, if there's anyone more elite or influential, show them to me. I mean, right? The the idea that he's going to fight that's, the elite—that's
3: Fox's Fox News whole <laughs> shtick. It's it's Tucker Carlson right. frozen food air railing against the elite, you know. So I feel like he's just repeating the what might as well be the Fox <laughs> But as soon line. as he
2: dies, there will be a succession battle, or at least if you believe everything that was written, which everything sounded like an obituary yesterday that was written about this guy stepping down. I'll mention, you know, the four children, and they all own an equal share. And as soon as he dies, there's going to be a fight, and no one knows what's going to happen. But no one knows if there's even going to be much to fight over at that point, right, if he does, if Rupert does live to be 103 like his mom
0: We should have a numbers round. Elizabeth, do you have a number?
3: Yeah, it's uh, $25 And this is the amount that a guy whose name is the Liver King is being sued for. He's a fitness influencer who told all of his followers to eat raw meat all the time and animal organs. Um, And one of his followers realized that... uh, this might constitute deceptive marketing for what the guy was saying that this would do for you. And then he confessed on YouTube that he was taking $11,000 worth of steroids every month. How much?
0: <laughs> wow. I, I Okay.
3: Now, this is from a, a story about influencers increasingly being cracked down on for deceptive marketing. So.
2: If you get conned into eating a bunch of raw meat... I- I don't I think Jordan you have Peterson standing did. to sue. <laughs> oh,
3: yeah. He got some
0: terrible <laughs> illness and had to go to hospital in Russia. That was a whole weird thing. Um, I, I have my number is 64, which is Murdoch-esque, maybe a little bit. Um, it is the number of companies in the Fortune 500 who have an executive chairman. And I think I've ra- railed against this concept of the executive chairman on the show in the past, but if I haven't, it's just the dumbest thing in the world. Um, the, I mean, and this is big companies. This is Nike, FedEx, Visa, Honeywell, Southwest Airlines. Um, the idea behind a, an executive chairman is you're the board chair, which means you're in charge of the chief executive, who's the number one executive in the company, but you're also an executive. And so, you're like it, if you're an executive, then you should be answerable to the board. But if you're the board chair, then yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. And 64 out of 500 companies do it. And of course, now, um, Lachlan Murdoch has come out and decided that he is going to be at uh, Fox Corps, He is going to be the CEO and executive chair, which is a combination I've never seen before, and is is particularly ludicrous because. Um, Why can't you just be the CEO and chair? Like, what is the difference between executive chair and CEO? The whole thing is ludicrous. But yeah, um, basically, this is a dumb job that nearly always goes to extremely powerful CEOs who don't want to give up all of their power. And come on, people. Emily.
2: I have a number. My number is 383.2 billion. Okay. That is the number of different possible permutations of a Starbucks latte you can get (laughs) 382 over 382 billion different variations on the latte i know this because bloomberg did the math they have an um, incredible flow chart in a story about how it takes too long to get your drinks at starbucks and it's a big problem for the company Um, and it's even pushing the workers to unionize because it's just it's very stressful and it's this great chart and it shows Latte, and then it shows the sizes. Then it's like you can get a cup lined with caramel sauce, or a cup with mocha sauce, and then you can have the signature espresso, or half decaf, or and then you can add a shot, and then you can do the different kinds of milks. And there's like at least ten different kinds of milks, and it just goes on and on and on until they get to the three hundred eighty-two point three billion. And I don't think anyone will ever be able to try all those.
0: That we quite certainly, no quite certainly, yes, quite certainly. <laughs> Quite certainly. Is this bad, do you think? Should, should Starbucks artificially constrain the, the freedoms of its customers to put together whatever insane drink they want?
2: I mean, it's bad if you think about the premise of the piece, which is that it takes too long to get your drink at Starbucks. And if they streamline the options everything might go a lot faster because half of their problem is they have to sort of figure out behind the scenes like where to locate like the blender and the ice and like how fast the coffee machine works and like what if X person has to get the raspberry lemonade syrup over in this corner and then has to walk 10 feet to get the ice to put in the raspberry lemonade. Like all of that complexity would go away if they just gave you fewer options, you know? Sometimes don't you go to the grocery store and you're like, it's too many yogurts like i just just give me three options kind of like that so from that perspective it's bad but from the perspective of like this is america and we should have as (laughs) as many options as we want then it's good
0: i I do think the there would be disruptor in this space is blank street coffee the vc backed coffee chain that is growing by leaps and bounds and that is really doing the opposite right you just go in there all you can get is a cup of coffee
2: yeah yeah and maybe one day the facial recognition will recognize your face and like read your mind and know exactly the right kind of drink to make for you somehow, and will like shoot the order from your brain right to the cashier. <laughs> There'll be no speaking. It's, It'll it's be... spell your
3: name correctly on the
2: cup. Yeah, everything will be perfect in the in the future world.
0: Cash, do you have a number?
1: So my number is sixty five point two million. And that is uh, the amount in euros um, that Clearview has been fined in European countries. There's also some more in pounds from the UK, uh, but that's in contrast to the 30 million it has raised from investors. So, if it ever has to actually pay all those fines that have been issued uh, by privacy regulators across the pond, it would probably put it out of business pretty quickly. Uh-oh.
0: Do you have a feel for, like, the the business there? Like, if it went out and tried to raise some money, is there anyone who is clamoring to invest in it?
1: I mean, it has managed to uh, raise funds after the initial kind of um, New York Times story I did about them. So... There's still some people that are are hopeful. Uh, One investor, though, this guy, David Scalzo, uh, from a tiny VC firm called Kiranautica Partners, often expressed his annoyance to me that, you know, he thought he was investing in a rocket ship, that Clearview was going to sell facial recognition, not just to police, but to companies, to everyone that, like, Googling a person's name, it, you would clear view their face, and he's been very disappointed that they've curtailed the market to just being a kind of a glorified government contractor. Um, so I don't know how many other investors out there feel like he does. They, you know, they they ha- they have gotten two million dollars in contracts with the Department of Homeland Security. You know, still working with lots of police departments, but um, it, it's certainly not what David Scalzo was hoping.
0: So, so this is this is where the glory of the American limited liability company and the bankruptcy system comes in, right? That if Clearview AI winds up being forced to pay all of these fines in Europe, or maybe even extra fines in the United States, it can declare bankruptcy. And that's not the end of Clearview AI. That's just the beginning of the bankruptcy process. At some point, there is a going concern business in there, like the debts and the liabilities wind up getting expunged in one way or another in bankruptcy and then clearview emerges from the other you know on the other side of that as a liability free ai corporation which can as per your investor you know become a rocket ship like in a weird way um if clearview ai were to fail that could set it up to become a giant in the space
1: it's true. But speaking of bankruptcy, I feel like it's a good opportunity to return to what you were talking about earlier, this Illinois privacy law. And I have this chapter in the book about how it came about. And it's kind of a, almost a quirk of history that Illinois decide they need to protect people's biometrics. Because this early startup called Pay By Touch, which was collecting people's fingerprints so you could, like, pay for your groceries instead of getting out your credit card. You would link your credit card to your fingerprint, and then you would just, you know, fingerprint and walk out with your groceries. It wasn't a very effective business model, and it was – the founder kind of had some – some, some unsavory things going on, like uh, drug abuse problems, offering cocaine to one of the board members, and the business was struggling. And they went bankrupt. And so this ACLU lawyer went around to people, Congress people in Illinois, and said, "Gosh, this this company that has all of our fingerprints went bankrupt. It's going to sell them off. You know, we need to protect Illinoisans, and uh, let's pass this law, the Biometric Information Privacy Act, in 2008 before most companies." Facebook and Google weren't really thinking about this at all yet. And that's how they got that law. It was just because uh, this, this, this party-loving uh, CEO of a, of a kind of high-profile startup went belly up.
0: On which note? maybe maybe that's going to be it maybe it's going to be the bankruptcy of Clearview UAI, which is going to precipitate to be the catalyst for national legislation around face recognition I doubt it anything is possible Kashmir Hill thank you so much for coming on this show it's been it's unconscionable that we haven't had you on the show before and I hope you will come back at some point
1: I'd love to next time I'll I'll get on a little bike and get down to the studio
0: <laughs> come into Brooklyn um Many thanks due to all of you folks out there who are emailing us on sleepmoney at Slate.com. Thanks to Ben Richmond and Shayna Roth and Patrick Fort for doing all of the behind-the-scenes work, putting the show together. And we will be back next week with more Sleep Money.